0: Yeah, and it's saying, uh, okay, yeah, my lag's kind of spiking up and down. I guess everyone in Germany is watching Netflix at this point in time, so... Yeah, that's true. That's probably <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> and, uh, yeah, actually, it's quite interesting. Even though seeing your face is quite good for reactions, but also if I don't see you or I can see... Like if I just focus on talking to the microphone, which might make the sound quality a bit better... Are you, so I'm just too distractingly beautiful. That's maybe. Problem. Maybe that is the problem. roll the music.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh shit!
1: <laughs> Welcome to the Gaps in Knowledge podcast. I'm Reese, and I'm a
0: geographer that knows nothing about history. And I'm Will. I'm a historian, and I know nothing about geography.
1: And to celebrate the unification of Germany today, I'll be getting lost looking for German islands, discovering German dialects, and falling on fiery mountains in the Vaterland.
0: And because I'm a strange creature, I've taken the idea of unification and applied it to history with maths, philosophy, quantum physics, and of course cookery. Because we're looking at Pythagoras, the man, the maths, the myths... The wizard was his theorem discovered or invented what on earth or in maths, did he think he was doing and why you should never trust a bean
1: a bean oh god i've got to change my dinner again sorry <laughs>
0: <laughs> right I, I think it's my turn to go first isn't it or did you go first um, I'll uh, so
1: tell you what, you go first. Um, I think I may okay. have gone first last time with the Royal stuff and the GCSE stuff, so yeah, I think it's you to go first. Yes.
0: On a, That's nor- right, okay. Yeah. Well, but, uh, normal service has resumed this week, which means, of course, doing things for absolutely no rhyme or reason. And my theme this week, uh for no reason, is Pythagoras. So, okay. my question to you, my misconception <laughs> is... Who discovered Pythagoras' theorem?
1: Oh, for God's sake, you can't ask that question when it's in the name. It's like, it, it's oh my god! It's, now that's that's a genuinely a really unfair question? Is there a committee I can bring that up with? Uh, nope. it, so if I, so
0: I'm going to say Pythagoras, and you're going to well, tell me. It's, I mean. Have you ever listened to an episode of Gaps in Knowledge? How how are you still with this? Is what episode twelve? How are you still doing this? I don't know. Like, but I don't know. It's the triangle? I don't... <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, that that was going to be my next question. Like, what do you remember of Pythagoras's theorem?
1: Well, it's a squared plus b squared equals c squared, isn't it? It's how to measure the hypotenuse yeah. of a triangle. So, um, and, and 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 I have seen videos before about how you can, um. Use a square to kind of prove it, and you change the dimensions of a of a square into rectangles, and you can see how everything is interlinked and everything is relative to one another um and you can mm-hmm. see it actually in action um but I don't know who's who's actually invented it <laughs> like it sounds like to me it's it might be a Roman or a Greek thing. I have no idea uh-huh. Um, someone back there. Am I in
0: the right ballpark or totally in a different Kind of, kind of. But the thing is, I would take issue with the word invented, because the thing is with Pythagoras theorem is is the same thing with quite a few weird mathematical things. Uh, It appeared in different cultures, uh, not far off the same time, although sometimes there was quite a big gap in of hundreds of years each time, and so for example, the Egyptians discovered it about uh, eighteen hundred years before Christ. Uh, it came up in Mesopotamia, so ancient Iraq, roughly the same time, but then you've got to jump forward one thousand two hundred years before it appears in India, and then it appears in China at about the same time. So the idea that one person invented it. Doesn't quite work. Uh, it's more a discovery of how the world works okay. rather than an invention. So I've
1: heard and something. So, so I've heard this before, where where things um, like are discovered around. They, they all sort of happen at similar times. People discover that or find out the same thing, and then claim it's their own <laughs> invention. But actually it was, it happened at the other side of the world as well in a similar manner. Is it, is this the light, is this the rail we're going down now?
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. And this happens quite often in maths. There was quite a famous one with, um, calculus, which is quite an advanced form of maths was discovered at roughly the same time by Isaac Newton and Gottfried Leibniz. So two people working completely independently discover the same way of describing the world, uh, in more or less the same way, completely independently. And the same thing's kind of true with Pythagoras. But that leads to a, a philosophical question, which is, okay, well, what actually are they describing here? What are these numbers? And that's what my main thing's going to be about uh, once we get there. Like what are these numbers? What did Pythagoras think he was doing? And ultimately, who was Pythagoras? Okay. But the short answer to the question is, Pythagoras definitely didn't discover Pythagoras's theorem. Pythagoras was basically a wizard, and it was probably <laughs> one of his followers who found the theorem and named it after him in the same way that, I would know, the Queen Elizabeth II bridge is named after Queen Elizabeth, or uh, that kind of thing. It's named after him to venerate him, not because he found it which obviously leads to the question who is this guy yeah who the hell is he then is he just some guy that's
1: that's wait no this so i imagined it was some guy who was just drawing triangles on a piece of paper and trying to work out how to measure them like that's how a pythagoras is in my head
0: but it turns out he's just well, some bloke who people name he's crap a, after absolutely he's he's not just some bloke he is a wizard and what I mean by that, you're going to have to stay tuned for the main event, oh God. where I'm going to tell you all about Pythagoras. And hopefully, my intention on this glorious, glor- my intention on this glorious <laughs> Unification Day morning is to completely melt your mind.
1: Okay, um, shall we go into my misconception corner? Yes, lure me in. Well, I've gone for a theme, and I thought it would be very apt, because it is Germany's unification day. All of my facts are (laughs) German-based. So I thought that would be an appropriate thing to do. So my question to you is, is how many distant island territories does Germany have?
0: (laughs) I like how that's a very gaps in knowledge question as well, but for completely opposite reasons from mine. Um, (laughs) Distant island territories. Well, Germany was stripped of her colonies after the First World War so none oh okay
1: so uh you say none and i've i mean this is i asked this to uh to one of our uh listeners jamie i asked him just to trial this question he said none as well and then when i told mm-hmm. him the answer he was like oh uh, i'm not sure but i'm gonna go with it because <laughs> there is one and i'm gonna say heligoland which is an island 43 uh, kilometers oh.
0: out of the north sea <laughs> Does that count? Come on, Come on, man. Put me in the Jamie camp for this one. Oh, no. (laughs) 43 kilometres. All right. Is that distant, I guess, is the question you're asking. I mean, you can't see it with the naked eye.
1: True, and I might have just misled you. It's 44 miles. I've just read my fact. It's 70 kilometres. So it's a bit further away.
0: Oh, what? that makes a world of difference then that extra 26 miles <laughs> it's a bar sure. extra away <laughs> may as well be the falkland islands at this stage
1: <laughs> well that was kind of trying to how i was picturing in my head so i might have been quite mean but i i think the reason i say this is because as you've already alluded to is that germany was stripped of all of its colonies so you don't associate with germany having any territories beyond its mainland really um mm-hmm. so so i thought it was a, a reasonable stretch to to talk about heligoland which which is a, a small, tiny island in the north uh, in the North Sea, um, which initially, actually, um, in, in its history, uh, was owned by Denmark, and then at one point, um, the, the, the British Isles as well. So it's had a few uh, ownerships. However, it is a um, it's a Frisian uh, German island that uh, sort of sits sort of um, how do you say sort of west of, uh, of Denmark and north of of, of, Germ- sort of west of Germany, I suppose, right in the middle of the North Sea. Um, but yeah, so. Um, Heligoland. So, do you know how many people live, how
0: many people live on Heligoland? I'm, I'm picturing like an oil rig so he's like three people and a dog See, what I'm thinking it has
1: 34 islands in fairness <laughs> okay <laughs> um, uh, and so it's a, so it's 34 islands and on the island there are a, um, 1650 people that live on it um, oh wow so it's got quite a significant amount but there's two main islands so they have um, they have one island where most people live uh, and they call that of course in German the Hauptinsel the main island uh, and there's mm-hmm. another one called a Duna which is in the in the east and it's just a, a tiny island surrounded by sand um but uh, let's give you a little bit of a, a rundown so um there's only really one way in which you can reach Heligoland uh, and it's uh if you come out of northwest Germany in a sort of a, um, a fishing t- a town called Cuxhaven. Um, you can leave the River Elba and there's and like boats that go there and ferries that go there. But that's pretty much the only way because the island's only a kilometre squared. So you can't have an airport oh, or right. anything on it. So it's that small. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can only take boats up to there. Um, it's quite famous for having lots of uh, seagulls, as you can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and there is. So You're not much... selling me on it.
2: No, not the <laughs> so moment, <far>. no. <laughs> Um,
1: But yeah, it's um, it's a little triangular shaped island, and it's a little bit like um, so. It's it's like a big hill that just pops out of the ocean, and it's got your famous sort of like geographical stacks and stumps, and you can see the the, the bed the bedding planes that go through the geology of there. But it sort of goes in downhill to uh, to sort of the main sort of downtown Heligoland, which isn't really that big really <laughs> but um but it has a it has like a little hospital there and it has a, a couple of schools and um yeah enough to support a village of about 1500 or so people um but it's hmm. uh but it's you know it's one of those places that people probably don't know exists and it's a little island uh, in the middle of the of the north sea which is which is german and do you know um, anything about um its language uh in sort of these islands in northwest germany <laughs>
0: Well, you mentioned it's Frisian and Frisian is not a million miles away from Flemish and Dutch, but not a million miles away from English as far as I know. It's kind of halfway in between the two, I think. Is that right?
1: You're pretty much on the, yeah, you're pretty much there. So as you've already uh, talked about uh, Pythagoras, you're going to expand on it further. I'm going to say exactly the same thing with Frisian as well. <laughs> We're going to go down that road. But um, but it has its own, uh, in Frisian. it has its own specific dialect called Heligolandic, which I think is quite nice. That rolls really nicely off the tongue. Uh, but it's only spoken by about 500 people on the island itself. But it is um, oh, right. in, in the same in the same notion like Manx, which is a, a language spoken on the Isle of Man. They're trying to revive it, so um, it's now being spoken in in schools and taught in schools. And there's much more uh, prints of local newspapers and Heligolandic. Um, so um, they're trying to revive the North Frisian language uh, on the island. But yeah, don't forget about Northern German islands. They do have some. <laughs> I think that and maybe Sinsult <laughs> might be the other one. There's not many, but uh, let, let us not forget them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, as far as colonies goes, it's not like South Africa or India or something. But So Heligoland, presumably, if we go back kind of, Before the last ice age, this is part of Doggerland, is that right? Yes, it would be. The the Uh huh Yeah. And so it's one of those little mountains that would have poked out above the plains before the seas rose. Exactly. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I always find these little island territories so interesting because like, either people have lived there untouched for thousands of years, which I think is probably nonsense, or some poor German fisherman got swept so far off course that he ended up there and couldn't find his way back. And that's how, he's, that's how people live there. Yeah. Very strange places.
1: Yeah, that's Mr. Heligoland on his fishing journey. <laughs> <He was laughs> swept off. <laughs> and started. Swept off and decides, it's my cliff. This is it. Sorry. This is where I live now. And he's had lots of seagulls yeah. as pets. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, I've called my uh, main article this week, Wizards exist and they study maths. So, strap in. Wow. It's going to start strange and get stranger because my first question is, where are numbers? What? What? That sounds like the question (laughs) hasn't finished. If you finish asking that question, (laughs) nope. Where are numbers? Where do where do numbers take place? Because I mean, and this this is kind of this is all linked with Pythagoras. the The thing is, we can describe things around us using numbers. So numbers are kind of an adjective. For example, you can have one cup of tea with two spoons of sugar in it and thirty milliliters of milk. That is using numbers to describe a cup of tea.
1: Yeah, with me so far. Uh, yeah, I'm okay. I'm on. I'm
0: all right. I'm. I'm committed to this journey. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> we're in. We're in. Okay. Oh, but God. the thing is, what does that number actually mean by itself? If you're not referring to a cup of tea, what is the number one talking about? But isn't what is it, the number two talking about? Et cetera, it, et cetera.
1: But isn't this like colour? It's that sort of thing. Like colour on its own is meaningless because it actually links to a particular thing that you observe as a, with a sense. Is it like... <laughs> describing green is really hard or impossible. Like describing what the number one is surely is impossible alone without it linking or being relative to something.
0: <laughs> well, the thing is... I mean, it's funny that you mention color because color is an interesting case. Color is not too far off sound in that, yes, it can, the, the, the easiest way of describing it is in reference to something else, uh, like a green leaf or a blue sky. But color can also be whoa, whoa, whoa. captured. Whoa, or bronze sky, bronze sky, sorry. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me. Sorry to any ancient Greek listeners. I can only apologize. Don't worry about what blue is. Bronze, it's bronze. You're right. Um, but the thing is, color can also be described mathematically. It's a wavelength of light. Oh, yeah. It's the speed at which a photon vibrates. Because or or the electromagnetic. Because wave
1: technically vibrates. speaking, you could have the Doppler effect of color. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can absolutely redshift. It's how you measure the speed at which galaxies are moving in space. Absolutely. Oh. Yes. Yeah. So, so you, is this on. helping us get closer to an answer? Well, no, not really. But <laughs> stick with me. Because, I mean, if, you, if we take another example uh, of a mathematical object like a shape, a circle. We can all picture a circle in our brain. Like, listener, try and picture a circle in your brain. The thing is, the perfect circle that we can all absolutely understand, you can picture a... Whoops. Can you still hear me?
1: I can. it went weird then.
0: Okay. Yeah, my guitar fell over uh why have I got a guitar you'll find out later oh god what What the hell is going on in this episode what have you like
1: are you sure you've just had too much coffee is your wife slipped something else in there because I don't know where we're going I did have some marmite crumpets for (laughs) breakfast okay maybe that's a concoction that is causing this to happen I have no idea
0: okay I'm still I'm I'm still here I'm, I'm, I'm on it. yeah Okay, good. The idea of a circle. The thing is, there is no such thing as a perfect circle in the physical world. We have circle-like things. I mean, you can imagine the top of a bottle or the rim of a mug or the, uh, I don't know, a circle of a plant pot. These are all circles I can see around me. <laughs> Except if you look at them very closely, they're not really circles. So where is this circle? What are they? What, what is a circle? <laughs> start you're awesome well, oh i'm starting to doubt my own existence now with all of this <laughs> <laughs> well i'm going to break you down and then rebuild you up but in maths okay. this is basically what i'm what i'm doing to you what you are currently experiencing completely against your own will no doubt <laughs> is the philosophy of maths right. what is maths is the question and there's two basic answers The first answer is that maths is something made up by human beings to describe the physical world. It doesn't actually exist other than the way in which we use it. So therefore, the whole question is meaningless. One cup of tea. You can't take the one away from the cup of tea because you're just describing the cup of tea. Does that make sense? Yep. (laughs) I'm still there. I'm I'm
1: still there. I'm still there. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. I don't know if
0: anyone else is, but but we're in this together. I'm
1: clinging on. (laughs)
0: but that's not what pythagoras believed what pythagoras believed is that maths exists without human beings that you don't need human beings to describe the maths for the maths to exist one plus one equals two is always true regardless of whether or not there's a human being to see it and so when he's investigating things like Triangles like circles. What he thinks he's doing is not describing our world. Pythagoras thinks he's describing an eternal world of perfect ideas, perfect shapes, perfect numbers. And that for Pythagoras, a human being is unique because it can access this perfect eternal world.
1: I bet, I bet, right? I bet he doesn't believe in decimal points. It's either one or two. There's no 1.5 in Pythagoras' life.
0: That's what it sounds like to me. Do you know what? You are, funnily enough, you are exactly correct because the way that they visual, <laughs> visualized numbers wasn't as kind of the digit one which you can draw as a straight line or the digit two which is a curly line with a straight line under it they visioned it as pebbles ah, like individual pebbles so one pebble is one two pebbles is two pebbles three pebbles is three pebbles and if you arrange it into a triangle you get a nice little three pebble triangle if you see what I mean
1: yeah 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 okay
0: So you're right. Yeah. Anyway, that's a diversion from what is already a very bizarre diversion. So, yeah, I I think, I think, of
1: all all things that you've talked about, this is the most dangerous piece of work to go off like a tangent (laughs) because might get lost into the wormhole somewhere. Never get out of it. We are
0: going so far into the weeds that I don't know if the concept of weeds is going to exist by the end of it. Oh God, so, you've just taken away our route out. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the, for Pythagoras then, okay, does it actually matter what the philosophy of maths is? No, it doesn't matter. You can decide for yourself. But the thing that I'm interested in here is what the hell did Pythagoras think he was doing? Absolutely. Because he... And basically, what he thought he was doing was channeling this eternal world of maths. He saw himself not as the bloke you saw before with a pencil and a piece of paper doing sums. He saw himself as a medium between the realm of the gods and the realm of the human being. He saw himself as a wizard, essentially.
1: Okay, so he's hoping that he goes to Hogwarts. Obviously, that hasn't been invented yet, but
0: he is Dumbledore. He would argue that Hogwarts has always existed in the mathematical world. Oh God. And he's just accessing it.
1: Must be a, (laughs) must be an absolute
0: drain at a party. I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Well, funnily enough. The music was pretty good, but the food was weird. Because let me tell you about Pythagoras a bit. Um, he was around about 500 BC, a little bit before, 550 or so. Uh, and there's not a lot of information about him as an individual. But what we do have is a lot of information from his followers and really from his worshippers. Because he was seen as a prophet. Because he can speak to this realm beyond the human realm, which is the realm of maths. You see what I mean?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I've got that. Yeah. yeah.
0: And so he sets up a a commune in a place called Croton, which is in the south of Italy. It's If you picture Italy as a boot, it's right on the sole of the Italian boot. Okay. And he lives in a cave because, of course, he does. (laughs) Of course, he does. He's a wizard. Yeah. And he doesn't speak to anybody except for his very closest advisors because, of course, he doesn't. He's a wizard. And he gathers followers around him and they spend their time following his wizardly ways to try and perfect themselves it is essentially a religious cult and it's a cult based around a couple of ideas number one there is a soul and the soul leaves the body after death Uh number two eating meat is therefore evil because animals have souls right and number three eating beans is also evil because beans have souls why beans and i'll talk about that more later That'll be my number time. Oh, God! (laughs) What journey! (laughs) (laughs) So, what we have then is we don't have a a scholar. We have a wizard. And the question is, what does he think Pythagoras' theorem is doing that makes him convinced that he is a wizard? Well, let's have a look at Pythagoras' theorem a little bit more. Uh, What Pythagoras thinks is going on here is... Uh, or At least, as far as I can tell, I'm not Pythagoras. To be clear, I'm not a wizard. I'm just a very naughty boy. What Pythagoras <laughs> thinks is going what on was here that? is that <laughs> it's Life of Brian. You've never I seen Monty Python.
1: Yeah, yeah, but I mean, it was totally unexpected. It caught me off guard. <laughs> 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 oh God! Okay,
0: refocus. I'm Reece, back, I'm, I'm back on the train. As an, as an Englishman, you must be aware that we're never more than about five seconds from some kind of Monty Python opportunity. That That's is just true, what actually. English is. That is true. To be fair, yeah. yeah. Pythagoras looks at a lot of things in nature and thinks, "Hang on a minute, that looks like a triangle." Think of a volcano, the profile of a volcano looks yep. like a triangle. If you think of how a landslide falls in one uh, straight line, but then at some point it will expand outwards. And as it expands outwards, it looks like a triangle. Mm-hmm. The shape of the delta of a river looks like a triangle. That's why it's called a delta, because mm-hmm. the Greek letter delta looks like a triangle. Uh, the wings of a butterfly, the shape of a pine tree, lots of these things are kind of triangular. And yeah. what Pythagoras believes is that they're not triangular by accident, they're triangular because they are borrowing from this theory of triangles oh. from the pure <laughs> world of maths.
1: Okay, so is he? So hang on, just uh, inter, inter, interject a little bit. Are, you, are we yeah. going down the line of Pythagoras as the inventor of pure mathematics? No. Oh, God. oh, I thought I had it.
0: <laughs> Back in the boat. Let's no, but I see why you'd say that. I see why you'd say that. The the There's two problems with that. One is um, the the kind of straightforward problem that he didn't invent these ideas. Um, these ideas predated him. People have been doing maths before Pythagoras came along. Okay. He just takes it in a bit of a weird direction. But people had already been coming up with these ideas and thinking through the ideas of what actually is maths before Pythagoras gets there. Uh, my second quibble, which we can always edit out, is whether or not it's invented or discovered. But that's kind of the whole question. Okay, like, yeah. what is maths? Is it something we've invented? Is it something we've discovered? Um, I'm not sure. Is my basic answer? No, the I think thing it is, it might be discovered.
1: But the thing is, what? <sighs> This is so funny because earlier when you were talking about this, I thought of the phrase, you know, if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there, does it make a sound? And hmm. and then that's a very famous thought experiment and philosophical idea. And, and I'm always on the on the argument of that um, if a a sound has to be both made and received for it to be complete, therefore. Uh, it, it doesn't make a sound because no one's there to receive that information, and I kind of feel like that, mm-hmm. that's Pythagoras's deal—is that he's going down that kind of route of philosophy, like what is what is things, what is stuff, <laughs> you know, and mm-hmm. and that's kind of where he's going with this. But I, I mean, and and in his wizardy ways, like what uh, what is the criteria, by the way, of wizard? Like that's one th- question I do have here.
0: <laughs> yeah, good question. The, the way that I'm defining wizard here is somebody who is at the portal between two different realms. Okay. If we think of kind of your your traditional Gandalf or your Saruman wizard, then they're in this world, they're in Middle-earth, but they can access the world of the gods to create magic and create spells.
1: Okay. So they're like the guardians of the of the tunnel between two worlds, which they only have access exactly. to. Exactly. Right. Okay. Exactly. Yes.
0: And so I think there's a very good argument to be made that Pythagoras is doing exactly the same thing but with a different world or at least he would say that the the world that he's accessing isn't really a world of magical spells it's a world of maths right although you could argue that maths is just magic spells at the end of the day but let's not go down there that's that's dark and dangerous paths. It is, yeah. <laughs> uh, just in, so. So where are we?
1: Where are we currently? Are we in the weeds? Are we deep? Are we just? Are we? Heads- uh, <laughs> we we
0: are we are kind of as, as deep in the weeds as we're going to get because we're going to okay. find a path out of these weeds. Good because back I- to the real world. Because I uh, don't worry. I'm not going to leave you hanging. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> as, I need to cast for breath at some Tio point. Dante, <laughs> like. Don't worry, I'm. I'm not going to take you to the river Styx and just abandon you there at the foot yeah. of the underworld. We're going yeah. all the way through. That would be
1: mentally unfair. It would be. be, ment-
0: <laughs> <laughs> it would be- <laughs> so, to 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 reiterate that point then about triangles. Basically, what Pythagoras thinks is that what we see in this real world relates to the mathematical world. It draws upon that mathematical world because uh, the circles that we see described around us in that teacup, in that pot in that light shade whatever it might be you can describe them using maths Mm -hmm. you can say that this shape that i see in front of me can be described in maths and actually you can do that quite easily using pi for example you can describe how long that shape is on a circle fairly easily in maths so you're saying that mass
1: mass mass entity is just a big adjective what do you mean by that? Like, it's, so it's, it's um, so maths in itself is just there to describe things only.
0: That would be the anti-Pythagorean way of seeing things. Oh, what Pythagoras okay. would say is that the maths is what the actual thing is, okay. but what we are interacting with is a description of the actual thing
1: okay so what's happened there is as you've taken me down this hole and i'm trying to get out but i've gone in reverse i'm looking back where i've just come from <laughs> yeah we've, okay.
0: we've got to, but we've got to make sure that we've understood this cave before we can start finding our way back out of the okay, cave, because right. otherwise it's not quite going to work the, the 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 way that you are saying things at the moment is the um the formalist view of, of the philosophy of maths okay that, that it's it's made up it's a game maths is just a big game used to describe reality. Pythagoras has it the other way around. Right, that okay. Reality is maths. And that what we are doing is interacting with maths. We just dress it up in these weird ways because we're human beings. But okay. actually all we're doing is messing about with maths. So when I see a colour, then what I'm seeing is isn't the object itself. I'm seeing the wavelengths of that light and my brain is interpreting those wavelengths, which are maths. A wavelength is maths. Mm -hmm. And my brain is interpreting that in a particular way. Okay. Does that make sense?
1: Makes sense. Now you've, you've, I'm turned around. I'm now on the ready for the journey out of this. I've got Pythagoras'
0: mindset and I'm through his lens. I've got it. It's there. Excellent. (laughs) Excellent. Well, let's take Pythagoras' journey out into what is really quite a lovely conclusion that he draws. One day, Pythagoras is walking through the town and he goes to a blacksmith and the blacksmith is hammering away because that's what blacksmiths do. Mm hmm. But as he's hammering away, he picks up a second hammer and starts hammering away with that one. So we've got two hammers going at once. And the first hammer, Pythagoras noticed, makes a sound. And it doesn't really matter what the sound is, but let's just say the sound is dum. That's the sound of the hammer. Dum. Mm-hmm. And the second hammer makes a sound that kind of relates quite nicely. Dum. So we've got the first hammer, dum. Second hammer, Dum dum-dum-dum. You can hear that there's a relationship between those nodes, right? Yes. Yes. That kind of sounds like there's something going on there that's kind of interesting. You're with me so far? I'm with you. Yep, I'm there. <laughs> Pythagoras takes those hammers and he weighs them. But why does he do that? Because he's mental. Yeah, That's just course. what wizards do. They do weird things. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and he finds out the first hammer, let's say it weighs the same as 100 silver coins. Okay. That's the one that goes dum. That's a hundred silver coins. The smaller one, dum, that weighs sixty-six silver coins. Aha! Uh-huh. The ratio between the two hammers is two to three. Ah. Uh-huh. Now, why is that interesting? Well, because he takes this idea home and he gets some wires and he hangs those wires up and he cuts them to certain lengths. Oh. And if he's got one wire that is, let's say, one meter long. Then the next wire, he makes two-thirds of a meter long, and he finds exactly the same thing. In fact, what he heard, I say going to my guitar, probably sounded something like this. Can you hear that?
1: I can, yes.
0: What he's discovered is that if you take a wire that is one unit long, and then a second wire which is two-thirds of a unit long they have a nice relationship together. Oh, is he just... Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, what if you take a wire that is half as long as the first wire? Okay. Well, what if it's three quarters as long as the first wire? Okay, well, let's play them all together. uh-oh, we've just discovered music.
1: Wow. So let's just get this straight then. So what you've done, Pythagoras has discovered a really yep. abstract way of, of of mathematics. We're talking about the yep. history of Pythagoras and his life and how he's discovered this. And then we're also yep. now cross-curricular over to musical notes. So... I don't know if we've done this before, but you've definitely covered three subjects within about 10 or 15 minutes, quite in good detail. It's,
0: I mean, <laughs> I am the polyfiller of gaps in knowledge, I guess. We're just smearing it all over the wall and covering up every gap we can find. I think so. <laughs> we are the plasters, to put it in layman's terms. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's just think about what the hell Pythagoras has just done there. First of all, if we describe that in musical theory, what we're listening to is a major triad. It's a major chord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And specifically, that's A major that I'm playing. Excellent. Beautiful. What is that in terms of maths? Well, it's one plus two thirds plus three quarters plus uh, half. And if you take all those ratios and add them up in vibrating strings, you get harmony. And what Pythagoras demonstrates, Really rather convincingly is that basically what music is, is it's another way of experiencing maths before my guitar drops over and gives me some rather discordant maths. <laughs> so <laughs> so what we've got then is um, art, colour, which is the basis of art, is another way of experiencing maths. Are you, Would you agree with me? Are you telling me that Jimi Hendrix is a mathematician? I'm telling you that Jimi Hendrix is one of the most incredible mathematicians ever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, I see. I see. And, and if we, if we take Pythagoras to be serious, if we, if we take this idea that, um, numbers do exist outside of human beings, then if we look at, say, the music of Bach, Bach, who is revered as the great composer of Western music, mm. can we analyze his music in a mathematical way? Well, we can. We can see that the notes that he is playing have strict relationships between them that are mathematical. And in fact, we can see that the way that Bach invents the tuning of a piano is based on Pythagoras's maths. Therefore, to expand this a little bit more, if we say that art and colour is a way of experiencing maths visually, because the different wavelengths are being interpreted in different ways, then music is a way of experiencing maths aurally, A-U-R-A-L-L-Y, with your ears. Yeah. Oh, that's incredible. And so, can we take that a step further... It's what Pythagoras would say, that all we are doing is experiencing maths in different ways. Wow! Colour is visual maths. Music is aural maths. And for Pythagoras, the fact that these really neat ratios sound good to us, which they do. A major triad does sound nice, it's a pleasing sound. That's not a coincidence. That's because we're getting closer to experiencing true maths. So what does Pythagoras think he's doing when he's messing about with these tri- triangles? He thinks he's finding another way to experiencing the true realm, which isn't human. Math is not human. It doesn't belong to human beings if you're Pythagoras. It's something outside of human beings. It's another way of describing the universe of which we are just a part.
1: He is a Isn't wizard. Isn't that weird? He's a wizard. He's he's a wizard. That's it. That's who he, he is. He absolutely is. That's incredible. He is, he is. He is. and he's and, very right, much a wizard. And he's... Right, rightfully so as well. That I mean, obviously, very well described and, and a story from your a, a story telling from yourself to put it in that in that way. But like, absolutely, is he a wizard? I didn't realize. I thought it was just Triangle Man, and that was it. That, and,
0: but. And this is the thing, and this is what you what you can lose in maths, where where you're learning your times tables. Well, what the hell are you doing there? Seven times seven equals forty nine. What? Where is that?
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. And the way in which yeah. maths can be described through so many realms is unbelievable. Um, I mean. Actually, and to, but here's the question though, and this maybe I don't yeah. know if you thought about this, but do you not lose the meaning of what art is or what music is if you start describing it in a mathematical, or not maybe to describe it in a mathematical way, but definitely experience it in a mathematical way? Do you not lose it or does it
0: add? I can't wear that out at the moment. I don't know what you think. Well, that is an excellent question. I think, I think there are two interpretations based on what you think maths is. I think if you think maths is an invention of human beings, then isn't art and music such a miracle? because we are just looking at the mind there. I see. All you are studying when you are studying music is how the mind can create loops and patterns in maths that um, that have some kind of weird beauty to them. And so therefore the mind is just such an extraordinary thing. If you agree with Pythagoras and you think that numbers have an existence outside of the mind, then what you're doing is you are experiencing ultimate reality. An ultimate reality, you can describe it as the infinite, as the immortal, as the eternal. You can describe it as God, if that's a useful idea for you. But for Pythagoras, it's about a spiritual experience. Right. So do you lose something? I, uh, this is why I think that nihilism's just too easy. The idea that there is nothing. Um, I don't think you do lose anything. I think either way, it heightens your experience because if you, if you look at a Van Gogh, the way in which the colours sit together and the technique sits together can be seen as a form of maths because it's all wavelengths. But there is some life to it. There's something else to it. But there, it, there has to be.
1: And so it's interesting because obviously I, I I'm a, come from a sporting background and I was just thinking as you were describing this as well. Like even in a sporting context if someone takes a free kick for example in football you could there are two ways to look at it someone scores like david beckham a free kick when he against greece when he got them into the into the world cup i think it was and you could mm, you yeah. can and you yeah, could look 000. at it in terms of um in terms of if you take mathematics out it's the curve and the beauty of it but also you can look at the mathematical side of it of how much spin was on the ball and the drag and 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 but i think this is where that, that that the line that's where the line is isn't it between pythagoras and using maths as an adjective is drawn do you know and i think that's where mathematics is beautiful in everything and it appears in everything and it appears in chaos and it appears in order and and i think <coughs> this is what um is fascinated uh, me about all of this and to even have music as described or as uh, presented as a mathematical idea is just nuts but Obviously, that's true, and it f- certainly feels but it is true. true.
0: Yeah. yeah, it is, and and the same the same is absolutely true of of, of sports. Uh, as you say, that that free kick that I can picture in my mind with his bald head as it pings around the wall, that is a mathematical object that you can describe in mathematical formula. You can probably describe it quite easily, actually, because a curve is is quite easy to describe on a graph. Yeah, um, but. Your point therefore yeah is are we looking at is is maths looking at the world or is the world looking at maths it's a, uh oh, that wow. <laughs> have we have we just answered well. that
1: or have we are or, or we letting listeners draw their own conclusions for that because
0: <laughs> well <laughs> I'm going to let off a little mind grenade here just to finish off this (laughs) battery of (laughs) artillery fire, which is to take us back to that Cohen that you mentioned before, the Zen Cohen, if a tree falls in a forest, is there anyone to hear it? Yeah. One of the points of Zen is that you can't logically answer everything in the world. Uh, and Actually, this is true in maths. It's something called Gödel's incompleteness theory. Maths can't answer everything. You have to accept that some things are true without being able to prove them. And so, does a tree fall in the forest? Uh, If a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear it? You can't actually answer that question in logic. It doesn't really work. So there needs to be something outside of logic, because you can still picture the question. So what are we doing there? Well, that's for next time. I'm going to go have a lie down, I think. lay I let off another mind grenade? Eh. Mm. Oh. eh. Yeah, sure. Theoretical physics is the world at which maths makes more sense than words. Anyway, let's get back to <laughs> your topic now. I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, what a segue into my topic. Because mine's <laughs> I mean, I have to say, before I go on to my, my topic now, it it yeah. we are definitely in terms of school teaching, we are hitting every subject, I think, today, because um, I'm going to go into modern foreign languages. <laughs> this is my area. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Here we go. So this is, so with the unification of Germany, sticking, I did have a theme. You might have forgotten after what <laughs> Will was just described about Pythagoras. I did have a theme because of the unification day in Germany. it the third of, third of October. Um, so my one is, uh, uh, we're looking at German dialects and German language dialects. Mm-hmm. So, um uh, German by the way I don't know if you know this but German is um the most spoken language in mainland Europe and all of I'm all of Europe actually um and there are t- it? yeah it is surprisingly and I think when they have that statistic it's to do with uh the native that spoken natively because uh, you could argue that English is spoken by more people um but not mm. in a native sense but natively speaking German is the most spoken language in, in Europe and it would make sense because you've got three nations uh who have German as their official language Germany Austria and uh Switzerland, um, but mm-hmm. you've also That's got true. you've got Liechtenstein, you've got uh, Luxembourg as well, parts of Belgium, mm-hmm. parts of even the Netherlands, I suppose, and even South Denmark, uh, and parts of uh, a very Western Czech Republic as well. Like these areas that border Germany, mm-hmm. it's in the heart of linguistic Central Europe, so it would make sense that um, most people uh, speak German in Europe. But there are 230 million German speakers worldwide. Um, and it's also a minority language, obviously, in Italy, Slovakia, Poland, even Brazil, Russia, and Kazakhstan, <laughs> surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's even spoken in Texas, in USA, and parts of Pennsylvania. So it's it, mm-hmm. it's all over the place. Um, but <laughs> linguistics um, uh, say there's about 250 dialects of, of German uh, worldwide. Um but, but you could argue that with most things like when there was if there's a collection of towns and villages like in the 18 1700s like the dialect would change from village to village we can see that in the uk with the the sort of the concoction and variety and diversity of of um accents that exist you've only got to travel with 15 or 20 miles between Liverpool and Manchester and it sounds completely different the English language I mean you could even go as far yeah, as like New- Newcastle and Sunderland for example the Mackhams and the tackems you know it's the it's the same thing mm-hmm. like it's the dialect is so so very so much because people either initially were so um they stayed in a place where they grew up and died where they grew up and you've also and they didn't move around much
0: um <laughs> i'm, mm-hmm, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm my, my favorite example of that is what would you call a little bread roll oh yeah it's funny you say that because that's the line we're going to go
1: down in german <laughs> is it <laughs> it's similar yeah, it's similar <laughs> um, i would
0: ah, how funny
1: it's it is kind of it's, it, I've, but i would call a bread roll um yeah bread roll that I would call it a roll
0: that's my area i would say it's a roll yeah um what would you I'd, call it? I would say it's either a roll or a bap. Oh, a bap, bap okay. is the word I would use. Yeah. But words like cob and balm are completely alien to me. Yeah. But that's what I'm sure some of our listeners would say they would call a bread roll a balm.
1: Yeah. Or a Sani, maybe if you're that's more of a flat bread, mm-hmm. isn't it, than than but the but yeah.
0: Um the same kind of thing, yeah. Or batty.
1: But this is the kind of road we're going down. Is that dialects are, are, are pretty varied. So what we're going to do is, um, I've I, I said just before we recite record this, I sent Will how many files? Seven files on Discord to let's get you ready yeah, to listen to. to do. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to do? We're going to look at some German dialects, um, and mm-hmm. I want to see. Firstly, uh, we're going to listen to them, and obviously see if Will can identify where in Germany or in Europe they they are from and you can play along at home as well uh, but the benefit of this mm-hmm. is that um, the dialects um so, sorry what's being said is the same each time by the same person who can say the same say these dialects so you can hear the nuances and differences of each dialect so the first one we're going to look at we need to set a standard we can't just jump into mm-hmm. this so we're going to go with high german which is hochdeutsch um and for those who don't know, Hochdeutsch uh, initially actually started, you'd think, this is a misconception corner, where would you think it started? Were in the north or the south
0: of Germany? I mean, if it's high German, of course, high equals north, one would presume. Yeah, if you're in the northern hemisphere, that is. Um, but yeah, which is yeah.
1: where Germany is. Um, but it's no, actually, it's the Hochdeutsch actually started in the south of Germany, in the Alps regions. Right. But it's later so up in the high mountains. Yes, and that's because uh, you've because yeah. you've got a, another German, which is low German, which we'll look at sh- uh, at some point. Um, but mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so, but Hochdeutsch is the one that is on the news, and all, all TV presenters have to uh, make sure that they speak in so that everyone in Germany can understand with little accent. Um, mm-hmm. So this is the baseline, and what you're about to hear now is uh, a German <laughs> saying uh, the, the sentence. I'm, now, uh, I'm going now to the bakery to get some bread rolls. I'll be back in a bit. So that's what the, the that's what the translation is gonna be. Um, so Aha, Bread rolls. Yeah, exactly. We're down the bread rolls. So that's <laughs> so what we're about to listen to now, and what you're about to listen at home is the Hochdeutsch, the high German version of I'm going now to the bakery to get some bread rolls, I'll be back in a bit.
3: Ich gehe jetzt zum Bäcker, ein paar Brötchen kaufen, ich bin gleich wieder da.
0: Okay, that was completely understandable. I, good for you is what I would say to Mr. High German, because Ab- I could understand him.
1: Absolutely, yeah. So, I mean, for those... I mean, it's quite weird. If, you, if, you, if you're if lucky enough to speak German, understand this will be uh, much more interesting to you. But um, I think for those who are non-speakers of German, um, I think what, it will be interesting for everyone to see how the language is so diverse and varied, is varied across Germany um, and Europe. Mm. And... To also understand that this happens in so many other languages as well. Um, so, um, we're now going to go to the first example of a dialect. Uh, so, we're going to, I've called it Sample 1 um, mm-hmm. and I want to see if uh, if Will can um, decipher where Sample 1 is from. So, um, here is the first dialect that I would like you
3: to listen to. Ich bin I wat Bollenkopen. Ich bin glühtchenbacher da da.
0: Okay. Um, That sounds quite a lot like Arnold Schwarzenegger to me. Oh, really? That kind of, get to the chopper, type of way of speaking. Do you know what I mean by that? (laughs) Ich bin schon wieder da. That kind of thing. So, And I know Schwarzenegger's Austrian, so I'm going to say we're talking Alpine. Ah, interesting.
1: Okay, so what you listened to there was Plattdeutsch, and this is low German. And interest uh-huh. which is quite surprising because it was quite a strong dialect um and this is yeah. this is the german which is linked really closely to the netherlands um and so, right. so you'll find this this strength of dialect across northern and northwestern germany um but the thing is, the reason that we probably don't hear it much in that strength at the moment is because it's kind of dying out, this kind of a deutsch language. It's being overtaken by Hochdeutsch, uh, which by is actually quite similar to some of the, uh, the dialects we're going to listen to, but particularly Plattdeutsch, deutsch which is Low German. And it was... Because um, uh-huh. w- what you need to remember about German geography is that if you say Low German, it's not because it's further south, it's because it's nearer sea level. And Germany mm-hmm. from the south is its highest point and in the north of Germany, um, like Holstrick, um oh I said it wrong. Uh, <laughs> uh, especially Holstein. There we go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, is further south, a uh, further north, but lower down and n- nearer sea level. So
0: that's where low yeah, German. It's would the be. opposite from the UK. In yes. the UK, we think of the Highlands as being north because it's Scotland but it's the other way around.
1: Exactly. But this is where low German is, but yeah. it's dying out, actually, a lot of this um, a lot of uh-huh. this German. So, uh, but it, I suppose if you go to certain villages again, you would hear it more strong. Uh, yeah. But that
0: is Plattdeutsch. Well, now that we know that it's quite closely related to Dutch, or, or at least kind of along those lines, um, let's just have another listen to it. Okay, let's go for it.
3: I mean, it, it's
0: got... That kind of sing-song quality that Dutch has. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It does.
1: It's kind of rhythmic, isn't it?
0: (laughs) It is, and there's a cadence that goes up and down Mm. a bit, which is a bit similar to to Dutch.
1: Yeah, okay, I can see that. That makes sense. Okay, so that was sample one. That was Platz Deutsch. So we're going to go to the second Mm -hmm. sample now, uh, Will. This on your is a WAV file with sample two, and uh, Mm -hmm. we're going to take a listen to this one now.
3: Ich gehe jetzt zum Bäcker Europa Semmel kaufen. Ich bin gleich wieder da.
0: Duh, what the hell was that? <laughs> 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 that sounded like slug German. That was kind of oozing out of his mouth. "Käufen," I think is what he said halfway through. Let me just listen to that bit again. "Käufen," not "Kaufen." "Käufen." I have no idea where that's coming from. Um, having said slug Deutsch is now going to be kind of <laughs> ethnically. <laughs> Morally dubious, if I say it comes from East Germany, isn't it? Oh
1: right, yeah, you're going to be as content um, to say, considering the theme of this episode, especially for my side. <laughs>
2: it's, it's,
0: <laughs> um, um, I, d- I have no idea. It, okay. It's not very pleasing to me, so I d- I've got no idea. Okay. North? Why not say the far north?
1: No, you're not. You can be more wrong. It's uh, Bavarian. <laughs> Is it? It's Bavarian. Yeah. So that's Bavarian, uh-huh. uh, Bavarian German. So. It's that type of German where, um, if you listen to longer speeches of it in, in the southeast of Germany, that a lot of people from Munich would speak, that a lot of Hochdeutsch Germans wouldn't understand what the hell was going on. It's like if you spoke to mm-hmm. someone from a, a, a part of Glasgow,
0: you'd be like, he? What? <laughs> it's, yeah. It's that, yeah. it's that kind of German. It is absolutely. It's, it's very, very strongly accented and, and not, I mean, Glaswegian's very similar because Glaswegian's not particularly aesthetically pleasing. It's not a very melodious accent and nor is, nor is that. That was horrible. It's
1: horrible, isn't it? That's how I kind of felt for that. But what's really interesting is that, um, that uh, Bayerische Deutsch is, if you, it's very similar, I suppose, to Cantonese and Mandarin written, you, you can say it the same way, like written German in that sense can be read by both Hochdeutsch and Bayerisch. But mm-hmm. uh, the way in which the vowels are spoken, it makes the dialect completely different in the same way that Cantonese and Mandarin use the same mm-hmm. script, but say different things. Bayerisch and Hochdeutsch mm-hmm. is quite similar in that sense. Um, so they often say uh, that it's under nickname called Schriftdeutsch, which means written German. Is, so the written German mm-hmm. is the same, but it's pronounced extremely differently. Um, but yeah, so that
0: was. That's so d- interesting how that works because it's, I mean, again, funnily enough, it's not that far off music. If you were to write down a musical mm. score and, I don't know, give it to James, the music teacher, to play and give it to me to play, we would come up with completely different ways of playing it yeah. that share similarities. It's interesting how that works. It's crazy. And and what I find with these, as we
1: go through all these dialects, is that, <laughs> that to to someone who doesn't speak German at all, you can just hear that they're different. You might see them as different, hear them as different languages. But if you can speak German, you will identify that it's German and it probably would be more frustrating to you that you can't understand it. Like I get frustrated, I can't understand some Irish people speaking English sometimes. And mm-hmm. But I'm certain mm-hmm. if I wasn't a native English speaker, it wouldn't bother me as much in that sense. I think it's just a different language. And I wonder if that's the mm-hmm. case of a lot of German
0: speakers throughout throughout Europe. <laughs> hmm hmm Yeah, it's it's just just beyond your grasp. Yeah, right. You can't quite get it. Yeah, it's interesting.
1: Okay, shall we go on to the third sample? Um yeah. so you need to click
3: sample three, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay, sample three sounding more like hochdeutsch to me. Okay. It's Less kind of slippery and slimy. Um, what that means for where it comes from, I don't know. For some reason, my immediate thought was Berlin and the Northeast. He's nailed I, I it. I can't tell you why I thought He's that, nailed it. I? You got Wee. it. It's Berlin. It,
1: that's uh, uh, <laughs> Berlinerish. And there's something specific in there, which you may have heard as from Berlin. And uh, if you listen back to it, we'll play it one more time. But when you listen to it again, listen to how he says ich. It's not the how Deutsch ah, would say ich. So listen to it again, yeah. uh, listeners and Will, and you will
3: hear how he says ich. Ich Stiefel eben zum ein paar Schrippen kaufen. Ich bin gleich wieder da.
0: Oh, funny. So he's saying ich. So he says ich.
1: Ich. 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 Yeah, he's managed to get two syllables out of ich. <laughs>
0: Which Funny, for those who don't I, know, that's reason, I <laughs> in German. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah ich. Um, but for some reason, I thought in Berlin they would say ish with a like shell sound sh, but no, no itker.
1: It's quite pointy. Right. it's quite pointy and very k- k- that kind of clicky <laughs> sound. Angular. Yeah. So the German for now is yeah. yet but uh, it's spelled tzt mm. at the end. J e t z z t. Um, but mm-hmm. the, a, 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 um, a Berlinerischer, that's really about a Berlinerischer, <laughs> would say a Jetsa. They would really get the emphasis on the N bit with the T and the Zs mix. So the Jetsa. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's the Berlin I mean, way. That's,
0: it's not a million miles of kind of Skanderwegian mm-hmm. ways of saying it. Icke, because that's well, Icke means no in um, Norwegian. Uh, but that kind of... Pointy, angular, but still a little bit sing-song. Sounds very Scandinavian to me. Yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah,
1: absolutely. That's our Eastern German um, entry <laughs> for, uh, for okay. this. Uh, but we're going to go on to sample four. Um, so uh, mm-hmm. another uh, dialect. Um, I nearly said it then by accident. <laughs> another dialect. <laughs> the sample four dialect coming your way right now.
3: Ich gehe jetzt zum Bäcker bei Brötli Poste. Ich bin gleich wieder da.
0: That doesn't sound like a serious language. (laughs) And therefore, I can only presume it's Swiss or something like that. He's
1: got it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, That's uh, that's Switzerdeutsch, yeah. Oh, dear. So, um, I mean... Uh,
0: they said xenophobia never gets you anywhere.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've got a question that now. Why was that so silly? And why was that therefore Swiss? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Let me let's re-listen to it and I'll see if I can pick out the Swissness of it.
3: Okay. Ich go jetzt zum Bäcker bei Brötli Ich bin
0: I don't, I don't know what sounds Swiss about that. I don't know. I, d- I, something to do with the, the postula, the way there's kind of a whole chunk of sounds together that it doesn't, it sounds kind of verging on French. It's kind of a mishmash of sounds going together.
1: I think I can help you here a little bit why you think that sounds Swiss. So like a, a lot of Swiss is like grusi. They put that E at the end um mm-hmm. which that e like goosey is like hello or, things, or greetings or something like that so that e mm-hmm. and they, they have a lot of that e at the end and i think that's what maybe sounds therefore less serious <laughs> that like in Austra- mm-hmm. like for example in australian english dialect where everything sounds like a question but it's, it's a little bit yeah. it has that kind of Same inclination country. to it um in in swiss because they have that e at a lot of the end of its of its uh it's german so Maybe that's why you thought it was a little bit silly. And there, but the, the link—it's silly, therefore it's Swiss.
0: <laughs> it's a, it's still, a, <laughs> I, do, I think I think it's odd is the word I would use. Right, it's odd, and therefore it's Swiss because I I find Switzerland quite an odd country. Uh, I think it's far more. I mean, it's in the middle of Europe, and yet it's not in the European Union. They don't use the euro. They don't have an army. They don't have many many things that are very European, and yet they are quite clearly European people. they so it's a, it's a very interesting place to me, Switzerland. I think we
1: have to save um, that I for another another for another episode. I think we can save Switzerland. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Just, um, okay, um, right. Last one, sample five. We've got a few other extra little bonus things to play, uh, but this is now mm-hmm. sample five. Um, and will I think you will find this one relatively interesting. So here's sample five
3: bin Verder
0: What the <laughs> hell was that?
3: I to listen to it straight back again. Okay, let's go for it again. bin Verder
0: Right. There is something about that that sounds a bit pigeony. And I don't mean the bird, but I mean P-I-D-G-E-N. I think that's uh-huh. how you spell it. Yeah. Kind of like a Creole type. Um it's it sounds like it's been disconnected from the motherland for a long time. Right. And has met other languages on its road. Um so where does that place us in the world? Is that like Brazilian German or something?
1: <laughs> oh, I see where you're going the line you're going down. Um you're <laughs> gonna you're gonna, this is Frisian. It's fr- <laughs> oh right. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh. So, this is. So, that's the one
0: that's not far off English?
1: Yeah, that's the one that's quite closely linked to English. Yeah, which is really weird to hear oh, that. Wow. So, but this is the one that's spoken on Heligoland, to go back to our first point. So, the Frisian language, uh-huh. just to get a bit of background there. So, the Frisian language are closely related uh, group, the West Germanic languages, and is spoken by about half a million um, Frisian people who live on the south fringes of the North Sea in the Netherlands and Germany. Um, it's the mm-hmm. closest, they say it's like the closest living relative of english uh, and some believe that the latter of english uh, originated from frisian so at his frisian that came first english was a was a a section of that and then was mixed up with french and and other latin languages um but it has been known or it's possible to if you could speak old english you could just about hold a conversation Um, with someone in frisian as well Mm -hmm. Which is um, Mm -hmm. kind of gives you a bit of historical context of the language, also. But this is, and this is what I'm going to end with. um, And I think all of us, all of our listeners, or most of our listeners, are going to be native English um, speakers. So I'm going to set this one up. You're about to hear a 30 or 40 second clip of someone speaking rural Frisian. But Mm -hmm. what it sounds like, and I want you to get this in your head before I play it, what it sounds like, I want you to imagine that you are not an English speaker and you can't speak English at all. And you walk up to someone, maybe he's just from outside Barnsley in Yorkshire uh, and he's got a farm and you're having a conversation with Mm -hmm. him and you're trying to understand him. So you can't speak English. You've gone to Barnsley in Yorkshire and this is the conversation that you hear from that Yorkshireman in Barnsley. (laughs)
3: In Duitsland, mooi is mijn. Die wil een keer op een snelheid met u rekenen. En ik denk, zei ze heeft niks. Ik ben we op de grijzen en zou de steen verder grijzen. Toen mocht je er aan het zien. Ik stel de douane er voor. Ik
2: zei ze met man, ik zei, uh, nou, ik ben verduitsvallen. Nee, toch, zei je, in de Duitsvallen, zongen ze er wel even eenmaal wijden. Nou, ik zou wel kunnen beweren. Ik de douane er naar voren. Dat is al lang niet and
0: that's uncanny (laughs) that is really uncanny it's weird isn't it that is (laughs) so close to being intelligible but it is unintelligible to me but the fact that we are approaching so close it is Very, very foreign, but very, very similar at the same time. And that, I mean, that is what the definition of uncanny is. It's, it's an odd, odd, because you can kind of get the gist of where he's going with it with some of the words, but then to understand overall what he's saying. Oh, that is weird.
1: It's weird, isn't it? And that's what I think that 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 Frisian language you can it's, you know, there's as as it, um, Nelson Mandela says, if you speak uh, to a man a language he knows it goes to his head, and you speak in his language, it goes to his heart. Like when Mm -hmm. I listen to that back, it kind of hits both. It's really weird. It's kind of like
0: on his (laughs) journey between the two. (laughs) It's odd. Yeah. If you speak a language that he doesn't quite know, (laughs) <laughs> but almost does. Then you hit him where in like the gallbladder or something, <laughs> and he gets very scared and some, frightened and runs somewhere, away.
1: Somewhere around there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> very odd. But I mean, so my um my master's degree was in medieval history and and in that I looked at some of the Anglo-Saxon chronicle in the original Old English, uh and read some of Beowulf in the original Old English and listened to Beowulf being performed in the Old English. And it's very similar to Frisian because it's at the very very threshold of intelligibility you can understand bits of it but it's kind of isolated uh, islands in a sea of unintelligibility it's a very strange experience okay
1: Shall, shall we head over to number time, then? I think we've got to head straight into number time. So I'm, I'm ready to Actually. be... Uh, oh, it's Pythagoras. Oh, God. <laughs> and numbers. Do these numbers mean anything? Are they pure numbers? Oh, okay. Fire <laughs> away. Let's see how it goes.
0: As, as if we hadn't had enough number time. Right. Here comes more. Um, and you're right. The theme is Pythagoras, and the number is one. Oh, for God's <laughs> sake. Is it a pebble? <laughs> It's not a pebble, but it is similar to a pebble in that I have already mentioned it. It's one thing that can never be eaten. One thing that can never be eaten. Yeah, Asparagus th- said there is one thing you must never ever eat.
1: Um, you must never. We said it didn't. It, beans was one. Beans. Yes, correct. Yeah, no, I remembered it. Never yes. ever eat beans. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered it. I've got a memory. Okay, what the hell is that about? What's yeah. he talking about there? That well, he's
0: mental it is mental but this is the great thing because we we you can agree with him on many many things but there are some ways in which he is after all just a mental wizard and one of them was with beans um he said that you shouldn't eat beans it's not entirely clear why but it might be because they're too human is what he thought Uh, there's a story that he um, sowed some beans and then pulled them up a few days later and what he saw looked too close to a human fetus the germinated seed when it Starts to grow. Oh
1: god! So it, look, it looks
0: too much like a human fetus. So,
1: so it looked like human. So therefore, you should eat it, kind of thing.
0: Exactly. Uh. Yes. If it looks like humans, that must be because I mean, if we if we think of like a mountain looks like a triangle, therefore a mountain is at least in some ways a triangle. Okay. That's the kind of thing that he's thinking of here. Right, got it. It looks like a human, therefore it must be going along the same kind of evolutionary lanes that lead to human beings, and so it's okay. wrong.
1: I could kind of see maybe with the texture of it, in in, in, in an essence, it's quite squishy, quite squishy <laughs> and humans can be quite squishy.
0: Yeah, quite squeegee and well I mean Aristotle kind of took the piss out of him and said that Pythagoras didn't eat beans because they look like testicles <laughs> or because they look like the gates of hell or because they don't have any hinges or because they're too similar to the nature of the universe. So like he's already being ragged on 100 God. years after his death by Aristotle. He I mean this is quite cl- clearly mental.
1: I mean the thing as well like living at these sort of type can I um, it, if everything just seems like a massive acid trip and the arguments they're having are just cussing each other down, it just seems as mental. Oh, Aristotle's going, Oh, by Fergus, he's such in it, he doesn't eat beans because they might be hinges. Like, what? <laughs> That's
0: like an incredible sentence. But, but I mean, you're. It, it is an incredible time because you're. Um, you're at the very birth of kind of human thought. And so people don't really know what thought is. They're just making it up as they go along. <laughs> and so if in some ways you come across an idea that's right, A squared plus B squared equals C squared, doesn't mean that everything else you're going to come up against is right. Um, and, so- and, <laughs> and and a really good example of this kind of playful nature in which they're, they're discovering thought and logic is... Plato tries to define what a human being is. Uh, and Plato looks around at the world and looks at human beings and thinks it's a human being. The best description he's got is it is. Upright, so it walks on two legs, yeah, and it's featherless, okay, and it has life. It's some, it's an upright creature that is featherless and has life, right? And so, Diogenes, another philosopher, comes along and he's got a chicken in one hand and he plucks all the feathers off it and chucks it on the floor and goes, Look, Plato, a man, and everybody starts (laughs) pissing themselves laughing because that's quite
1: funny. That is quite funny, but what a dick, but that is funny. (laughs) Oh, god. <laughs> this kind of say, like this, this, this era. This is the era of trial, trial and error. That's what this is.
0: <laughs> yeah, it is absolutely it is. It is that is one hundred percent what it is. It's, um, it's trying to figure out kind of what we are actually doing here, and that's the birth of, of human beings um, as distinct from prehistoric man who doesn't quite have the same concept of, of self. So I can understand so, why
1: eating beans might be weird. <laughs>
0: Yeah. To some people. <laughs> but, but the funny thing is that, I mean, Plato is, uh, sorry, not Plato, but uh, Plato is definitely wrong about a man, like a upright, featherless. Yeah. That's biped doesn't make any sense. But Pythagoras is, Pythagoras is also wrong about beans because broad beans, which is the ones he specifically, again, really good. You can make a nice dip out of some broad beans and garlic. Yeah. And it's not going to curse your soul or anything. I don't think it does. So, so he can access this realm of, again, if we're taking his idea seriously, like 1 plus 1 will always equal 2. That's neither right nor wrong, that just is. 1 plus 1 will always equal 2. Hmm. It doesn't matter if you're a human being, or a dog, or a chicken, or a wave in the ocean, or a quasar exploding in the night sky billions of miles away. 1 plus 1 will always equal 2. Yeah. B- broad beans are not evil
1: no, no. <laughs> and so he's he's missed the mark on uh, that one in the trial and error era he's hit the
0: error <laughs> section <laughs> on that one very much so and that's because he's a man and that's what we do we get some things very very right and we get some things completely wrong and it's all a big laugh at the end of the day
1: Shall we jump straight into my number time wheel.
0: Yes. Yeah. So
1: you, obviously you, we know my theme, um, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm gonna, on the assumption of my theme, my clue is tectonics and the number thirty.
0: Uh, oh dear. <laughs> um, because Germany is not renowned for its tectonic activity. Oh, are you? Are you? Are you a um, bit of a hitch? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, so what, you've got Italy pushing them from the south, doing a bit of tectonic nonsense. And you've got the uh, Swiss in between, though, haven't you? <laughs> you do have the Swiss in between doing whatever they do. Um, I'm going to say there are 30 earthquakes every 100 years in Germany. Oh, that's not a
1: bad idea, but it's wrong, unfortunately. And you're going to be really surprised to hear this, but there are 30 volcanoes in Germany. <laughs> What? No, there, aren't. there are. What are. There are. thirty about? volcanoes in Germany. <laughs> really? <laughs> really? Yeah. So, um, where? Let me let me go through. it. so one of the extra little bits. So I did put an extra clue, but I thought I'd jump straight into it. it was the Eiffel, which is a region just uh, sort of south of Cologne, Bonn, that sort of area, um, and. But um but there yeah, there are there are thirty volcanoes in Germany. Most of them are um uh, in the mountainous uh Z Zee-Bang, Um oh Z burger there you go it's quite a tricky one and the Eiffel areas um but one particular part of the Eiffel was even named after the volcano it's called the Volcan Eiffel which stands for volcanic Eiffel oh so that well if I'd known that (laughs) (laughs) but um but the the thing is Germany's volcanoes may look harmless um but experts and volcanologists have (laughs) said that they could actually erupt one day Like what? genuinely is like a possibility. Um nah. but it shouldn't erupt, they say, particularly for like a couple of thousand years. Um they're they're pretty dormant in that sense that they're not gonna just suddenly explode. Okay. But don't get too comfortable because <laughs> um <laughs> it does lead onto something else. Um but um, There is actually in Germany something called the Volcano Route. I don't know if you've you've heard of this, but it's a volcano route where um, the route Mm -hmm. in Germany through the Eiffel goes past 350 eruption sites. (laughs) Uh, Oh, wow. at, At 39 main sort of stopping points, stations. And it has like mm-hmm. and at each of these stations it has a huge i mean if you've never been to the eiffel and and and, and you want to go on like a, a weekend trip away, I highly recommend it it's a beautiful part of the countryside in Germany, and there are some um volcanic uh, like volcanic geological sites that you can visit, which really does give evidence that Germany is a volcanic area, not necessarily active to a certain extent but either a history of volcanism or to a certain extent still some volcanic activity luring deep beneath the crust. Um, but it is it's definitely you can see things like volcanic lakes some quarries there are sinkholes there are even walls of volcanic rubble geezers and big uh, volcanic um volcano domes and hot springs and it's quite a surreal landscape in certain parts of the Eiffel but it is it has huge amounts of volcanicity it really does exist in Germany which is crazy because as you've already said like there's no I didn't think there were volcanoes in Germany we are we are right in the middle of a, a plate boundary the Eurasian um, the European plate so why would there be volcanoes but here's the thing um, there's a place called Lacher Z so it's a, which is a lake in the Eiffel that sits mm-hmm. on top of
0: Germany's super volcano <laughs> uh what yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's a su- we're not just talking about piddly little volcanoes there's a super one there is so you
1: might have heard the super volcano in terms of um wyoming in usa
0: is you yeah you, uh, is it yellowstone or yosemite that's it
1: yeah so the one the one yeah. that's in once in wyoming yosemite um national park and the mm-hmm. crater itself is 120 kilometers wide like <laughs> and is, mm-hmm. and it isn't an, a- apparently an imminent eruption could happen, but then geologically speaking, imminent could mean next five seconds or the next 5,000, 10,000 years. Like, <laughs> so right. like, you know, it's uh, geologically speaking, like times and eras gone for millions and millions and billions of years. Um, but <laughs> this super volcano, which is, I think it's, it's significantly deep under Germany. Um, but a lot deeper than the super volcano in Wyoming, which is evidently clear with the hot geysers above it. But it was predicted yeah. to erupt in 2012, and it didn't. And we're ten years later. <laughs> Jesus. Uh,
0: okay, that's what. <laughs> that's, I thought they were meant to be all dormant or extinct, but no, that's pretty active. Okay. but it's but it's because of this.
1: Um, uh, this area, the Lacazie, is uh, which is buried in the Eiffel Mountain region. Um, it's down the road from some something called the Andernack Geyser, and it's the highest cold water geyser in the world.
0: <laughs> oh wow!
1: Yeah, so there is caused by that. So instead of going to Iceland or uh, New Zealand for your volcano, uh, volcanoes and earthquake excitement junky thrilled holiday, you just go to the Eiffel in Germany mm-hmm. and you have the same experience. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so I mean, it's. As, as you mentioned that, I thought as, as we, we drive down the Autobahn 3 fairly often because it leads down towards Munich and then on to Slovakia to visit my wife's family. Mm. And on the way down, as you go past the Eiffel, you go past a mountain called Drachenfels. Yeah. Which means dragon mountain. I mean, and I've always thought that's very conical. That really looks like it could be a volcano. So I, so therefore it was a volcano. Yeah presumably because it's part of this Eiffel region. Does that mean that the dragon of the Dragon Mountain is just the magma inside? And what they're saying is don't go inside, there's fire inside that mountain.
1: The warning's built into the actual name
0: construction itself. (laughs) Yeah. It is. (laughs) Don't. And so the dragon is just the exploding mountain.
1: Yeah, exactly. And a lot of places, a lot of things are named like that. But yeah, so if it's got Dragon Mountain, definitely. it's uh, Obviously it's Mm -hmm. breathing fire somewhere, or it hasn't in the past. So be careful because it could erupt at any moment. And yeah. So, if you're driving past the That's, Eiffel...
0: <laughs> yeah, keep an eye out. Keep an eye out. That, have you come across the, the kind of long-term nuclear warnings? Uh, no, but... Does that ring a bell? It doesn't, but... This reminds me... Well, I'm going to take you there. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, I did just have another sip of coffee in case you're wondering where this has come from. That when when people were um, designing nuclear power plants, they realised we've got this nuclear waste that will still be around in ten thousand years time. But if we look back ten thousand years into the past, we don't have any messages from those people. Like, how can we possibly leave a warning here? Oh my god! That will last ten thousand years beyond the end of our civilization. And so the kind of ideas they came up with were very, very interesting. One was to try and breed a kind of cat that glows in the dark when it's near radioactive material. <laughs> and then invent stories to say, if you see a cat glowing, stay away.
1: That's incredible. Which is
0: mental. That's, yeah. Or to leave signs on the front saying, um, this is not a place of honour. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. This place is best left alone and left uninhabited.
1: I've, I've got something. Doesn't here. that sound like a curse? But, but I've got something here and that sign and this yeah. idea could be counterintuitive because if you have that oh, that's the problem if you have that and i read that i go oh <laughs> that sounds really interesting i want to find out some more things about it and then you go and you investigate and then how have we discovered things with artifacts and archaeological things over time by digging things out of the ground um Exactly. So I think Exactly So my so my idea for that would be just to leave it the fuck alone and put no sign that anything was
0: ever there. (laughs) That's kind of how I would do it. But then if but then if you do that, then of course people will stumble across it because that's what people do. So it's a it's a really odd, odd, tricky problem, but it but it raises this kind of issue of how do you leave a warning for, for the deep past. And um, one way is to say dragons live in this mountain. Don't go in there. Exactly. Because if you do, you'll be burnt by fire. It's exactly the same thing. Um, very, very interesting that, that we come across the same idea, but from completely different viewpoints. I see. My personal favorite solution, by the way, was, uh, that of the atomic priesthood, which is to make <laughs> the Catholic church, but all about nuclear energy. <laughs> So thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for accompanying us this week on our trip down Gaps and Knowledge Lane. Um, if you as i said before if you do have any ill side effects from listening to this episode then <laughs> please do get in touch at gaps knowledge at outlook.com or should you wish to find us on facebook then just search for gaps and knowledge podcast and we will appear
1: and if you want to uh check us out on other platforms we're also on twitter at gaps podcast and if you search for us on youtube we post all of our episodes there as well well see you Thanks, next see time see you next time bye, bye.